Thanks for listening to the Hedgeye Investing Summit, featuring conversations with some of the sharpest minds in investing, including Ben Hunt, Lynn Alden, and David Rosenberg, hosted by Hedgeye CEO Keith McCullough. To get access to the other eight Hedgeye Investing Summit conversations and for more great investing content, go to Hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back. Had a little sandwich there. I just said to Dan Holland that maybe Jersey Mike's is going to start sponsoring this thing. I do. I wolfed that thing down. Hopefully, I can survive the next uh, 45 minutes with a, a top-end analyst that I've been waiting for a long time to have this discussion. I know it's not uh, your first time on Hedge ITV. You had a had a good conversation with my with my colleague and now partner Rob Simone, who got made partner at Hedge Eye in the last year. But uh, he spoke highly of you. The Twitterverse loves you. Um, so, Lynn Alden, welcome and thanks for making some time. Thanks for having me. Happy to have a conversation. So, I, I, first, I want to take a just. A, I like to give people uh, an opportunity to get to know who you are and. And, and know about your process. Uh, I did find it unique that you started on your own in terms of going out of the corporate world or whatever you might call it at the same age as I. Uh, at 33, I started Hedgeye. You, you, you started, ostensibly started um, Lynn Alden Investment Strategy. So um, can you give people a, his, a little bit of history in terms of your background and how you got there? Sure. So my background actually started engineering. Uh, I did electrical engineering and then engineering management uh, in the aviation industry, uh, focusing on building and maintaining and uh, running uh, aircraft simulators for research purposes. Uh, that was kind of what I focused on and started out as design engineer, but then shifted mainly to managing the finances of the facility. And, you know, people often ask how I got into to investing. And the funny thing is, it's actually, you know, before I, I went into engineering, I was interested in investing from a very young age, but I, I pivoted towards engineering. And if anything, I kind of eventually came back towards investing. Uh, that was kind of always my passion all along. And so what I try to do kind of at the, at the end of the day is apply an engineering mindset um, to investing. Uh, I, treat, I treat things as systems, systems analysis, uh, systems engineering. And so I, I take that kind of quantitative focus. And so, you know, I, I look at mainly the longer term, right? Like the, the three to five year investing horizon. What are the major trends? What are the tailwinds going to be over that period most likely? Uh, but then I temper that by looking at things like, you know, what is what is the kind of the 18 month uh, cyclical cycle look like? It, it, it's probably the, you know, it's a, a less uh, detailed version of what you would call the quads, basically the, the kind of the rate of change of what's happening in business. And I, I overlay that onto these longer term trends that I try to look at. I take into account, you know, long term, it's about valuation and, and fundamentals, but obviously short term, it's more about liquidity sentiment, um, various price movements, the, the, the kind of the ongoing cycle that we experience. Um, that, that's how I try to approach things. And you also, I mean, you have a, an, an acute focus on just boiling it down in English. Uh, which, I, which I think is pretty cool. I mean, I, I try it myself. My problem is I keep making up my own words and whatnot, so then I start to confuse people with trade, trend, tail, multi, you know, multi-duration, uh, multi-factor. But, um, and actually, that's one thing I definitely want to get into now that you say it that way, because my multi-duration model, like my trades, trends, and tails, are actually at their max inside of your, you know, where you start, because you're three to five years, and my long-term tail is always three years or less, and I'm always looking at the three-week to three-month uh, you know, cyclical to, to trading relationship. But that's what makes for really good conversations is when people 
Um, you know, Neil Howe, for example, on our demography side, he's more like on the 20 to 30 year uh, you know, s spectrum. So, so that's really helpful. But, but, but first, before we get into that, can, can you just expand on, 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 on that part of your mission, if it is your mission, if I, if I read it correctly? Yeah, definitely. I've, I've generally found that there's a unmet uh, market for kind of sophisticated retail or plain English institutional research. And so, you know, if you look at the at the landscape, you know, until maybe recently, you have institutional research, uh, which can be very complicated, very jargony, um, kind of difficult to access. A lot of the investment research dedicated towards retail tends to be sensationalist, uh, generally low quality. Um, and so one of <laughs> one of my approaches was to basically um, you know, take institutional research and put it in plain English. Um, yeah. and, and the funny thing is institutional people appreciate that too. Uh, so it's, it's not just taking institutional and giving it to retail. It's, it's taking institutional uh, and then just covering it in plain English so that both you know, relatively sophisticated retail investors can make use of it, hopefully. And then institutional researchers, uh, you know, they find certain angles differently, especially if you have a fresh lens. Like my lens is through that engineering perspective. It's kind of a different way of looking at things uh, compared to, to what they might find uh, you know, other people right in that field. And you know, you mentioned Neil Howe. I actually, I actually found his research very useful as well. Um, one of the things I try to incorporate uh, because I found it to be very useful in this environment is that super long-term perspective. Even though yep. it's generally, it's generally past an investment horizon, but the way I treat that is looking for things that deviate from the normal cycle. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, when you have these kind of like larger, uh, you know, what he would call a fourth turning, these larger events, um, I, I find that very useful. And I've kind of actually combined that with um, Ray Dalio's research on the long term debt cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, about five years ago, I was trying to get my mind around where this kind of macro environment was headed in kind of the, the generational sense. Right. I was kind of asking big questions like what happens when this debt gets to unsustainable levels? How is this resolved? And, you know, I, I saw Ray Dalio's research and he pointed back in history and I ended up doing a deep dive in that whole period. The last time we had, you know, sovereign debt levels this high in the developed world. And so I, I, I kind of also have those multiple different time frames. It's just that my my average time frame is, is obviously further out than than your average time frame. Yeah, it's um, it's 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 fascinating to kind of hear how somebody approaches the same thing in a different way, but in in a way, it's the same way. Like, I mean, um, yeah, there isn't a there isn't a view that I have on a trade trend tail basis that isn't wrapped around the all time cycle view, right? There's no such thing as looking at which I want to get into. Uh, I want to get into with you the the CNI lending cycle or or the current state of banks within that cycle without pulling it back, like Bob Schiller taught me how to do that. It was actually the first thing in plain English for an idiot from Thunder Bay, Ontario to go to Yale University to understand in the economics. That was the first thing I understood. I mean, I, I, I was like, I'm not going to fly a rocket ship to the moon, and I'm certainly not going to be the top student in this calculus class, but I can understand mean reversion. And, and, and to do that, you actually have to look at the all-time term in the time series. And, and, and it really is helpful to have a demographic view, because that's one of the few things as you well know, uh, time, space, and life itself, <laughs> that really isn't subject to a lot of opinion. <laughs> yeah. Have you found anything else like that? Because, you know, I'd, I'd love to find like 10 Neil Howes. I know they don't exist, but in different, you know, different realms that have, have their own body of work. Is there, are there other people out there that, that you would recommend that I have on Hedge ITV that are super long cycle types that, that I could access? 
Yeah, that's a challenging question. I think off the top of my head, but basically for me, it, the the two kind of points that I found useful is combining some of that Ray Dalio long term debt cycle with Neil Howe. It's almost like you get the quantitative view yeah. and then the qualitative view kind of put together. Um, I, I think Luke Roman covers um, you know some of that long term stuff very well. Also, kind of these big pivotal events, and I, I generally find that. There's no one analyst that I, I follow for any one thing, but I kind of piece together what I what I think people are strong at, and then try to find someone else that covers what they might be weak at, including mm. my own weaknesses. For example, I don't cover anything in the healthcare sector really. I can't differentiate, you know, different types of of healthcare companies. So I have to look out at, at people that I think cover that better than I yeah. do. I might have a macro view of that space. I might have a valuation view of that space, but I don't have any knowledge on on pharmaceuticals. And the same thing is true for when I cover geopolitics or these kind of bigger things, where for me, I take a very quantitative approach. I like to go to the raw data, um, but then I, I, I combine that with other people that help me interpret it. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, The Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com research to subscribe. Yeah, I mean, the, the struggle when you're narrative driven on a longer term basis, just because you write about long term doesn't mean that it's helpful. Uh, and I'm not going to go off on certain people to do that. But I mean, I really do think that you have to bring it back to what's happening in the market, what's happening in the rate of change data, et cetera, et cetera. So let's do that on the on, on this banking crisis. And I know you've written about it, but maybe take your first uh crack at summarizing like today's quote unquote banking crisis versus 08. Do you think they're similar in any regard? Do you think they're quite different? Yeah, the main difference is that this is more of a duration uh, challenge compared to a credit challenge. So back in 2008, you know, going into that event, you had basically generationally low um, uh, cash and safe assets on bank balance sheets relative to their riskier things, things like loans, things like things that can actually default. Uh, and obviously, they, they did run into a, a default event, so they risked the, their whole bank capital getting wiped out uh, by these series of defaults. And it looked in many ways very similar to the 1929 crisis in terms of, say, uh, you know, the, the how much bank loans were outstanding relative to the monetary base. These kind of like these big generational charts in, in the quantitative mm. data. And so I, you know, that whole you know, the 2008 crisis and the 2010s aftermath are in many ways very similar to the 1929 crash and the whole 1930s uh, aftermath, um, which which is, you know, going back to Neil Howe, that's, you know, basically the fourth turning type of environment. Um, this one's different in the sense that it's, it's, it's at least so far, uh, you know, there are certain pockets of, of credit risk. Uh, but the, the main thing hitting banks is that they're ironically, they invested in very safe assets, but at wrong prices. Mm -hmm. And now they're facing, um, you know, their, their deposit rates going up, they're facing unrealized losses. And then they have a challenge where they obviously they can hold those assets to maturity, but the market doesn't always let them do that, especially if they have deposit runs and things like that. So earlier, you know, last month, there was a liquidity crisis. Now I think it's evolving more towards a profitability problem because, you know, while the Fed and others have these facilities in to prevent ongoing liquidity, or at least reduce the, the severity of some of these ongoing liquidity problems, banks now face an issue where, you know, they have some of these long duration assets that, that might be relatively safe, and many of them are, um, but then they have rising 
uh, deposit costs mm-hmm. overlaid on top of that. And you know, if you look at the Federal Reserve's own balance sheet, I mean, they're in the red. They're they're at a, they're operating at a loss now because you know their you know their liabilities adjusted upward very quickly. That that that's a policy they decided to do. And essentially, we're seeing the slow motion version of that happen to the commercial banking sector, where their their deposit side is slowly kind of catching up. Uh, from a you know with a big lag compared to where the Fed's own like uh, rates are, and you see that more so happening in the long end of the medium and smaller banks, whereas larger banks have more um, overall position to not really raise rates as quickly because everybody wants an account at, at those bigger banks. And so right now there's a kind of a, I think an ongoing profitability problem among those small and medium-sized banks. And then it's obviously further exacerbated by some areas of actual credit concern, things like autos, things like commercial real estate that are, that are well-known issues at this point. Well, the, um, you know, the, 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 the tie-in, or I should say that, yeah, it's really the tie-in and the handoff. I mean, when you go from you know, just outright duration mismatch to, okay, now we have a liquidity issue from a corporate cash flow perspective, and you're still my credit line, and you're still having this duration mismatch. Now, like I've just tried to like to boil it down. You know, Jamie Dimon got all the money, but his clients still have a credit problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the the credit problem is born out of the credit cycle, which is born out of the cash flow cycle or, or the, the cycle itself. So, what do you think about that handoff? I think it's going to be a mess, and I think I think one of the you know, going back in history again, looking at say the 1940s, which is the kind of the closest macro environment, oddly enough, to, to the 2020s environment, that was the last time they tried to come off the zero bound. When they they were on the zero bound, they had inflation, and they tried to raise rates off that zero bound. And you know, the question is, how do they handle it? And and the answer was is an absolute mess. They basically had, to, you know, they they did yield curve control. They inflated away a lot of debt, and then they tried to slowly come out of that, um, you know, zero yield environment. Back to you know getting back towards positive real yields, and it took them quite a long time. That was an environment with you know partial capital controls. That was an environment of no social media. Things happen slower, so you can kind of you get people into these silos, and you can slowly change things. I mean, gold was banned for forty years for Americans. It was it was kind of a it was a weird environment, and essentially you know in the, in this you know now we're in a fourth turning again, and essentially they're doing this they're. they're in the same environment where they're obviously trying to get off the zero bound in a very indebted environment, uh, this time uh, I think the challenge they're running into is they actually took a different course in the playbook. Last time they did basically what Japan's doing now: the yield curve control, rate raise things slowly. This time they they tried to rip the bandit off and just jack rates up, uh, and basically it's emanating into the banking problem and it emanates into real estate. And I think we see these cascading problems. And I think the challenge is that they eventually face kind of a a Minsky moment where they're not able to handle both at the same time, mm-hmm. where they basically are in a situation where they, they try to normalize rates, but that they still have to end up providing liquidity to the treasury market and some of these other kind of core markets. And I think they're going to be in that kind of weird environment again, with the key difference being that we are in a different technological environment now where we have social media, we have rapid real-time data, uh, we have more free flow of capital, at least for the for the you know the Western world, and I think that's that's the challenge they run into is that they're they're essentially applying a 1970s kind of inflation fighting playbook to a, a situation that's actually more like the 1940s, mm-hmm. and I, I think it will result in some pretty extreme outcomes. Yeah, it, it, and that's the biggest problem with people that you know come up with a narrative that tries to make it 
this is like 08, or this is like 01, or this is like the 1940s. I mean, it's always different all the time, but the cycle itself has the rhythm and rhyme you know, to it in terms of trying to find its bottom. Um, very good point that you made on like when you when you think about uh, duration mismatch at the at the regional bank level on this slide ninety six which you alluded to this but just to put some meat on the bone like when we think about the like eight trillion in yo, like low low yielding fixed rate securities against you know funding the the eight trillion in, in in higher costs you know this is really interesting I mean if if you just like to put it what I, I I really like about this conversation in your mission here is let, let's put it in English all right so is it fair to say that the Federal Reserve has become the world's largest regional bank you know with a duration mismatch problem essentially yeah I, and I wrote an article about that months ago oh you did? Uh, it was yeah I wrote an article about that months ago because wow. that chart <laughs> that you posted that chart you posted was floating around and I, I dove into it because what that chart, my chart was mine was floating around. That St. Louis Fed chart, that yeah, yeah. one with the yeah, yeah. that the one you just showed the remittances. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And basically, the the problem with that chart because it it shows the problem, but it it so all those numbers prior to that going negative are weekly numbers. It's how much basically the the Fed is sending the Treasury every week, and then they change their calculation in the end there, and it becomes cumulative. Yes. And it kind of it kind of damages the chart. So I, I saw that um, Jim Bianco Bianco he put out a really good chart that he he made the whole thing cumulative. He took that data set. Mm-hmm. And made it cumulative, and it shows that you know you basically have this line going up for like ten years, and it starts to roll over. Um, I, I made a chart where I, I I was inspired by his work, and I made one that was both cumulative, and then I also showed the weekly ones on it as well. And I dove in in an article about why this is happening to the Fed, what what choices led to this, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was a few months ago. And essentially, it's it's what you pointed out that 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 was almost a precursor for what we're seeing now in the regional banks that you know the Fed has huge unrealized losses. Um, they have, uh, unlike most banks, they actually have an operating loss, meaning that their liabilities are yielding higher yep. than their assets, uh, which is historically very unusual. Um, now, unlike a normal bank, they don't have to gen- necessarily make a profit, but over time, it does start to impact a number of things. One is it it impacts the treasury because the treasury used to get a revenue source out of the Fed. Now they don't get that revenue source anymore. And then longer term, the, if, if this goes on long enough and they dig themselves in a deep enough hole, it actually does kind of um, bring up questions around central bank independence because kind of bank central bank solvency is kind of one of the factors at least has has some leads them to have some degree of central bank independence compared to you know what you get in kind of a banana republic where there's really no independence at all so over time if you were to have them hold that level for a sufficiently long period of time and you have commercial banks have to slowly raise their deposit rates in order to compete with money markets and t-bills you'd eventually have them all start to look like that that cheat essentially they, they'd all start to have these kind of negative profitability and they would start to eat into their capital and yeah. so I think that they're going to have pretty insane decisions ahead of them where sometimes they're facing both inflation and uh, recession problems at the same time or at least kind of back to back. And there's it's a it's the worst possible environment for a central bank to navigate, because if they have a 1970s style problem with low debt, high inflation, the answer is to tighten. Uh, whereas if you have the combination of very, very high debt levels and inflation, that's when they face kind of the, the impossible scenario. Mm-hmm. It's um. <clears throat> It's it's really interesting when you take that um, and very well put. You you take the the sim- simplicity of the math that the Fed used to generate positive P and L and hand it to Janet Yellen. This is the yeah. real simple way to think about it. And now they're losing money, so they, it's not about losing money because they can't actually lose money. 
they just can't give Janet any more money. So <laughs> this is, um, how do you think about that? I've thought about this, obviously, but um, how do you think about that with the T-minus six weeks on the debt ceiling? Well, that so the TGA is already getting pretty low, the Treasury General Account. Yeah. And so basically what, what the way this all works is they, they've already started taking extraordinary measures. It's like if you'd lost your income source and you, and you can't you know tap in your credit cards, you have to start drawing down your existing cash balances in order to pay your, your liabilities. And so that's what, that's what Yellen is doing right now. Um, they're supposedly going to get an, uh, an increase uh, you know, in these next couple of weeks per, due to tax season. That's possibly overstated due to how, how poor most capital gains were. Um, you know, over the past year, so we'll see the magnitude of that. Um, it, the the debt ceiling issue might strike more quickly than Yellen has previously estimated. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people doing really deep research on that, but I, I think essentially that is a huge catalyst to be aware of because, ironically, it's not necessarily the debt ceiling to, to focus on; it's what happens right after it when they when they resolve that debt ceiling. And the Treasury tries to raise their cash balance back to their normal target level. That's a huge liquidity withdrawal yep. out of the financial system that is already very tight on liquidity. So, you know, autumn of last year basically was kind of a, a partial turning point in liquidity because for most of last year, uh, you had the Fed drawing down their balance sheet, uh, and that was obviously pulling a lot of liquidity out of the market. But then, starting in the the later part of the year, you had the Treasury really begin to offset that to a significant degree. They were pushing liquidity mm -hmm. back into the market while the Fed was pulling it out, and so you actually had somewhat neutral uh, liquidity conditions overall, kind of this choppy, sideways, kind of um, you know stagnant liquidity environment. And if you get to the end of that, where the Fed is still trying to draw down. And now the Treasury is trying to refill its account later this year. That's a double negative whammy for liquidity, and mm -hmm. it might cause one or both of them to have to course correct. But the the path between there and and here and there, I think, is going to be fraught with with volatility. Yeah, the um, one of the most important um, you know charts that people can constantly refresh on that front is net liquidity. Uh, Stan Druckenmiller actually taught me that. I mean, we learn a lot from other people, and it's nice. Uh, to have somebody on Hedge ITV that acknowledges, you know, the places that you learn things. I learn things from people all the time. Um, but the, just measuring and mapping net liquidity when you get the double negative, that's really bad. Um, but just to finish this and then bring it back to the banks itself. So we have the world's largest regional bank with a duration mismatch problem, you know, yep. and the, instead of having a company that they can't give a credit line to, they have a country. <laughs> so, you know, it's, to me, just, just looking back to, you know, there are seasonal patterns to markets, but it's kind of bullshit unless you understand like which one you're already in. Um, but the timing when you have, like as Mandelbrot would say, like particular things at particular points in cycle time, there's a particular endpoint where the money, like where the government can, cannot fund itself. And like you said, depending on tax receipts, we'll see where, what that date is. But it's not like it's in August. It's sometime in June and it might be late May. So we've defined the point in cycle time where the most risk is. Uh, and we also have, like at least according to me, the lowest point of real GDP growth, lowest point of inflation, lowest points of corporate profits in that same window of cycle time. You know, if you go back to April of 2011, between April of 2011 and August, the S&P 500 was down 20%. I mean, what do you think about that last point, just fully loaded with the cycle point in time and agree or disagree with it? And, and the inability of this damn S&P 500 to, to even give you a sneak preview that it wants to do something like that. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. 
Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah, I, I, I am very cautious on equities for the next you know several months. I, I think that there are attractive areas longer term, but until we have more clarity on this liquidity situation, we see basically a storm on the horizon. It's unclear how they're going to handle it. Now, if the market correctly sniffs out to say the Fed's going to blink and they're going to pivot their liquidity, kind of like they already partially did in yeah, March, yeah. Um, you know, it's possible the market, say, front runs that and then you know uh, it never gets the big sell-off that, that you know, some of the bears expect. Uh, on the other hand, and that, that's part of why this is a challenging market, because it's so human-driven. We're basically trying to predict <laughs> what a handful of individuals like Yellen and Powell are going to do. So there's a couple ways they can handle that. One is that, you know, obviously, they're, if they reach very low cash levels, they can shut down the government for a period of time to extend the, the period that they can operate without, you know, an outright default on some of the more, um, you know, either either essential payments or the debt itself. So they can extend it with that a little bit. But that, that obviously has an economic impact on its own right. Um, and then essentially when they when they eventually have the debt ceiling impasse, one or two things has to happen. Either, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve might have to provide more liquidity, um, which is awkward given their current inflation mandate, or the Treasury, for example, can shorten their average duration of Treasury issuances and try to draw liquidity out of the reverse repo market. Uh, but that also, it doesn't make sense from a number of standpoints. That's, that's the the most expensive part of the curve right now. And it also deviates from their normal kind of uh, plan of, of maintaining rather uh, consistent uh, average durations. Um, so I, I think that's going to be a big challenge for them. And it's just this multi-month period of, you know, we see decelerating uh, profit margins. We see decelerating growth. We see on, you know, across the spectrum, if you look at, at you know, all these different parts of the economy, we see labor starting to, to, to weaken to varying degrees, even though that's been, that's, you know, traditionally a, a, a lagging or coincident indicator compared to some of the others. Even that one is beginning to show, uh, you know, somewhat fairly early signs of weakness now. And I think a lot of recession indicators are kind of pointing towards that same part of the year as, as you pointed out with the liquidity crisis. And um, I think that cash, T-bills, cash equivalents, not you know, relatively low volatile stocks are ways to maybe weather the storm until we have greater clarity on how they're going to handle these kind of extreme environments. Yeah, that's, um, I like the I like the weather analogy because the weather is undeniable when you're in it. Um, and if you have a forecast, God forbid it's accurate, yeah, you might be prepared with the umbrella. So um, you know, only on Wall Street would somebody come up, Lynn, with another answer to that, which is, well, due to the valuation today, I'm not going to use the umbrella. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just, that's why I never start with valuation. But um, if we go to slide 95, I just want to doodle on something for you. I did it with Lizanne uh, and... Apparently, according to the audience, they like that. So I'll do it one more time um, at the risk of um, being repetitive. I won't use the same chart. But so this is, uh, as, as you'll well recall, um, going back to 2011, uh, debt ceiling showdown, as I, as I pointed out. From point to point, this is a 20% drop in the S&P 500. The black line is the S&P 500. But all the way up until April, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to believe. Then you get a little bit more of a chop, and then you just get bang all at once. On the other side, on the, uh, on the other axis, we, of course, you know, you, we have the CDS. What do you think, I mean, so, so I'm just making a point here, Lynn, of, of history, that history would tell you you can have a train 
oncoming in front of your entire family, and Wall Street will keep the kids right there on the train tracks until the train is there, making a variety of arguments as to why the train should stop. Until you, the train actually gets there, and then you have, in, in this case, that's exactly what happened, right to the wire, kaboom, it all went down at the same time. But never has American CDS not been the front end, tip of the spear, leading indicator on the front of every, back then, I mean, it was on CNN, for God's sakes, every single day. I mean, it was on, when it gets to CNN, something that would be on CNBC, you know that other people are attention. So what do you think about that? Like when you, when you wake up in the morning and you, do, you go through your process, you look at your indicators, can you talk about what you, what you see when you see the US CDS chart where it currently is and where it's come from? Yeah, so what we what I've been tracking over the past several months is this, especially this liquidity environment. And basically, the whole thing was, I it's like ironically because the debt ceiling, and they have to they have to draw down their cash balance. It's actually been constructive for liquidity yes. in 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 recent months, and that was something for you know months now I've been writing about, saying that I, ironically this is a type of environment where some of this bad stuff can actually be you know surprisingly decent for the market, and that's I think part of why the S and P five hundred has been holding up pretty well. Um, and so you have this environment where it does not look good. I mean, it looks good for a period of time until you get to that point where it actually hits the road, right? Mm-hmm. When you actually run out of the TGA, when you actually get to the either yes. the government shutdown or the impasse, and then the need to refill it. And so I think that explains a big chunk of why the equity market is ignoring the CDS, is ignoring uh, some of the other uh, you know kind of indicators we're having. The same thing actually happened going into the COVID crash. Basically, you had you know commodities started to smell it out. Um, you had uh, basically a number of analysts point out that this, you know, the virus is actually serious. It's actually going to spread. You had a lot of fundamental research kind of pointing in a direction. And the equity market, it, it just didn't price it in at all. You know, week after week after week, it was not pricing in at all. And then it was all priced in at once. Yep. Um, and so I, I, I maybe a less extreme version, more like the chart you showed. I, I think that's something to be worry of. Worry of uh, later this spring or early this summer, exactly when it hits, we'll see. But essentially that. You know the ongoing liquidity is, is still decent at this time, but it points towards a liquidity train wreck going forward. Yeah, uh, and it, so it's a, yeah. it's a very, I mean, um, it's it's very appropriate summary. I mean, uh, slide sixty-one, we just call it the sinkhole, right? I mean, the the last thing, of course, to cave in is the surface. And um, you know, in the equity market, if you take out seven stocks, you know, the the equity market's not the same equity market. It looks more like the Russell two thousand. So <laughs> that, of course, is is also Giving you plenty of sinkhole um, analogs that you could kind of kind of roll with. But um, the the last thing I wanted to ask questions on before I take other people's questions, if you have questions for Lynn, um, just pop them in the queue and, I, and I'll ask them. Uh, taking this to a place where, I mean, I'm not a bull. You know, I've, I have been bullish. Uh, it's not like I'm some kind of perma bear or anything like that. But how how do you how do people that are bullish on Bitcoin, you know? Take everything that you said and say that's bullish for Bitcoin. Well, I think partially you define your time frames first of all, um, and so basically, some people what they do is they, you know, they put Bitcoin in a different segment where they say this is something I'm not going to touch for a certain period of time. Kind of like how if you have physical gold in your house versus say a, a paper gold in your portfolio, yep. you might treat them differently. You might say that the physical gold I'm not going to worry about the price. I'm not going to worry about timing anything. Whereas the paper gold I might. You know, try to do that. Yep. I think this is the same for Bitcoin. I think there's, you know, if you define yourself as a Bitcoin trader, you want to focus heavily on things like liquidity. Uh, you know, I, I've done a lot of work on trying to figure out what 
you know, what, what are the main factors that are the strongest correlation with Bitcoin price? So, you know, historically, one of the ones is the halving, but that's actually not really good for a specific timing purpose. Uh, generally, liquidity and, and economic uh, indicators are better. So, you know, if you put it simply, if you buy Bitcoin when the, when the PMI is rising, you're going to have a better time than if you buy Bitcoin when the PMI is falling. <laughs> and if you want to get more precise than that, um, if you look at various liquidity indicators, they generally front run PMI a little bit. Yep. And Bitcoin also tends to front run PMI a little bit. So actually, the closest correlate that I, I've generally found for Bitcoin is is various measures of liquidity, uh, both domestic liquidity and then global liquidity, including, say, dollar denominated global M2 in rate of change terms. Those are the types of, of things that correlate heavily with Bitcoin. Uh, and so in any sort of like, near-term environment, if you're trying to, to judge what it's going to do in a, in a multi-week or multi-month period, you have to generally have a, a, a decent view on what liquidity is going to do. Uh, whereas long-term, uh, you can look at things like, you know, what percentage of the supply is 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 liquid versus like tightly held? Uh, what are the developments happening on that whole ecosystem? So what what is making Bitcoin better to use, better to inter interact with? Uh, what are the other technologies kind of building on that whole stack? And so I... I, I the way that I view Bitcoin is I have this kind of long-term holding, this very long-term structural view that I occasionally check to make sure that thesis is still in place. But then I, I, I use the shorter-term stuff, the cyclical stuff, to one, uh, manage position sizes, and then two, set expectations in a near term. And so, for example, I would use, during this past cycle, I would use GBTC as a way to you know get in or get out, kind of change my position in that sense. Whereas, like, say, cold storage Bitcoin, I, I treat more like physical gold, where it's something that you have a structural view on that you almost hold as a separate, uh, like a separate category. Yeah, I think, um, well, I'm almost certain that you and that's why you and Rob Simone had your first conversation at Edge ITV, because you he thinks of that um, that that physical gold analogy in his Bitcoin mining and how he thinks about adding to it and subtracting to it, which he subtracts from it as well. Some people think you just DCA something and it's just like rainbows and puppy dogs. That's like that's that's bullshit. I mean, I don't know. I mean, dollar cost averaging is what Wall Street's tried to tell you to do with mutual funds since the beginning of time. Um, but but how somebody functionally does it that owns it like Rob does, he does think of it as his physical asset and trading it is different. Um, so I appreciate that and I get it. Um, the liquidity component, it makes me think back kind of like, first of all, to the, to the last 30 minutes of our, of, our, of our conversation, which is liquidity on a net basis was actually, if you, if you called for what it, you called it, which was, was actually accommodative on the margin up until uh, the most recent period where it became very accommodative. I mean, if you guys go to, I think it's slide 65 on our deck, I mean, you just, you just what's eliminating 63% of QT in two weeks? I mean, obviously, you know, everything like that. It wasn't just Bitcoin, but those two things, Lynn, have been, I'd say, in the aggregate, looking backwards, of course, um, and, and I'm different, to be clear, because I go from, I'm cycle-to-date guy, so I go from backtesting any asset class against the quads, the only quad you have to worry about being long Bitcoin is, or crypto, is, if you think of it as an asset class, is quad four. Quad four started to get priced in starting at the, basically the middle part of November of 2021. And I just stay with my full investing cycle and trade the moves in and around it. But if I take your perspective and I just say it's all, like liquidity is the number, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you're starting with the liquidity first, I start with my quads, right? Um, and by the way, they kind of sleep together a little bit. So, <laughs> you know, the PMIs aren't accelerating in quad four, they're decelerating. Um, but 
what do you think about that? Was could that explain how Bitcoin has had its rally? And if we're going into net liquidity being unaccommodative, and you don't get any more cowbell eliminating that you know, on that order of QT, that that becomes a headwind. I think that's absolutely a factor. And like I said before, when I was trying to, I was doing research to figure out what is most correlated with Bitcoin, I kind of touched on multiple areas. Like one is right. is that economic rate of change, like, you know, PMI or, you know, a set of indicators that kind of resemble something like PMI is the economy accelerating or decelerating. That is a pretty strong. And, mm-hmm. and the reason those both work is that both liquidity and the quads or the economic cycle are, are rather correlated in themselves because liquidity is kind of a big component that, that helps drive economic uh, cycles one way or another. And so you kind of get a slight difference on the exact timing. Uh, but yeah, essentially, I do think that this recent liquidity pump was a big factor. Now, obviously, Bitcoin has been rising before you got this big March liquidity injection, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously it's different than QE, but it's still a pro-liquidity effect while it was happening. And so, you know, I think part of it was that, you know, Bitcoin uh, was so beaten down by the whole, you know, crypto fraud, FTX, all, all that stuff that happened last year. So if anything, it was earlier this year, you had kind of had a partial recovery just because you had super oversold levels. You had a, a lot of kind of long-term people kind of coming into the market, buying it, uh, pulling it back up. A lot of it also was the the dollar index. So, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, where the dollar peaked back, back at that, um, yep. you know, late last year, that was roughly when you started to have domestic liquidity trend sideways. I talked about it earlier. You had yep. the treasury was was providing liquidity that the Fed was still removing. And so if anything, that that kind of is partially explains the Bitcoin move because you had, you know, liquidity was getting worse and worse and worse. And you had all these leverage things blow up. But then once you had that kind of liquidity uh, start to stagnate for a period of time, it allowed the, the fundamental kind of uh, longer term aspects of Bitcoin to start taking over again. But yeah, if you, if you have liquidity roll over again here, uh, I do think you could have Bitcoin consolidate or correct for a period of time. Uh, rather than keep going up at the same pace it has been, uh, you know, year to date. I think we're already kind of maybe seeing early signs of that where we're due for a pause, due for a correction. And I think that'll be heavily tied to partially the the economic cycle, partially liquidity, and then especially because both of those are, are inherently intertwined anyway. Yeah, I think it's a, a stealth call out and you, you've, you've done it twice and I had you repeat it. <laughs> Again, people don't really understand the subtleties of that net liquidity being a benefit when, when you, A, you came off a very uh, deeply um, oversold level on our signal, as I'd call it. And it wasn't just that, it was a lot of things. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager in chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40 plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high conviction long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Cool. All right. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, some of the questions that are in the queue, if you don't mind. And and, and sure. one has to do with, I know you do have, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have a view that like banks actually teasing you or raising these deposit rates is a risk to the banks. Is that right? Well, longer if they if they raise their deposit rates at a very quick rate while they still are not able to adjust their asset side uh, very quickly, then yep. it eats into their profitability. Yep. 
And then they have to do things like either reduce share of purchases, eliminate share of purchases, uh, uh, slow down their dividend growth, maybe cut their dividends in, in, in more significant extents, or outright have to raise capital. And so I do think that that some of these long tail banks have have profitability challenges as long as the Fed tries to maintain rates where they are, um, and that that slowly starts pulling up the deposit rate towards those levels. Yes, that's that's um, well put. One of the uh world's best performing hedge fund managers this morning literally texted me that. <laughs> he said, because WAL, I don't know if you saw what they did. Did you see what, what that company I, did? I did not. So it's one of these banks that got absolutely jacked. But he's like, Wall's only up because they're giving away the farm. Four and a half percent deposit rates, no shit. Uh, but this means their NIM's going to get hammered going forward, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it is a, and, and this is, I'm leading to this first to the top voted question. Which is the other, and, and I, it, again, I really appreciate that you bring it back to what you know, common people without all the nomenclature uh, can understand. I think people can understand that Apple's teasing you with a 4.15% deposit rate on Apple Pay now. I think you can understand that if, if you're a bank, you got an account at WAL or you could flow money there, that four and a half is a good number. Um, but does everyone, you know, essentially, the first question from Bill is how safe is that money? Um, and, and should you be doing that as a uh, in your personal account? Well, so I think you, when you have your cash, you have to find what the purpose is. Obviously, um, if you're looking for the longer term, safer stuff, you know, uh, T bills, money markets that that have reverse repo exposure to the Fed. I mean, you're getting better counterparties than any any individual bank. Um, whereas banks are more for that 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 liquidity that when you need it right there. And you know, historically, when you look at at the prior uh, hiking cycles, uh, generally you wouldn't get much average deposit rate changes, even as the Fed was hiking, partially because they wouldn't stay there for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, banks banks generally have uh, pretty high switching costs. People don't people don't shop around too readily with their existing accounts uh, when you have kind of a hiking cycle. But if they do stay higher for longer. Um, uh, I am, you know, concerned about a number of these banks, and like I said, I haven't, I haven't looked uh, too deeply into that one yet. That's a fairly new announcement. Yeah. Uh, but, but generally, I would be concerned about any sort of teaser rate because you have to ask long term: Is this sustainable? I mean, a lot of these banks are holding uh, securities and loans that are yielding, you know, less than or, or you know, roughly in line with that four percent number. Um, and so it, it does kind of uh, threaten their long-term profitability in order to have very, very high, um, you know, th- those super high rates. And I think that, you know, we don't see much movement on, for example, JP Morgan, because they don't have to raise rates. Everybody wants an account at JP Morgan, but you do see kind of these long tail of other banks being the ones that are more aggressive in trying to, to retain or collect deposits by, by jacking up their rates. And that, that does threaten their profitability. Yeah. If you so put simply, I would say that if you put, I wouldn't put more than two hundred fifty grand at Wall Bank. Yeah. W A L is the ticker. I don't even know what the bank's called. Uh, but there are a lot of banks. Yeah. That's why I don't know all their names. <laughs> They're just banks. And yeah. if somebody's offering me that, and, and I put one dollar, actually, and now you got to monitor if because you do put it at two fifty, and you compound you know at four and a half, you're gonna, you're going to have more than two fifty. <laughs> so I mean. This is going to get really interesting for 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 America, right? Because you're, you, I don't know how what Liz Warren's going to think about that. But if 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 you're a wall, and all of a sudden you get a bunch of people put in two fifty, and the thing goes belly up, then what you know what the fuck? <laughs> 
I think I think we're probably going to see consolidations on that long tail of smaller banks because, in addition to being you know more more readily having to raise their deposit rates to keep up with this sort of thing, yeah. they also have a, a a larger percentage of their assets are loans than securities, so they're less liquid overall. They're less able to use you know the Fed's new facility, and you know we've we've had already this multi-decade consolidation of of fewer and fewer absolute number of banks, uh, even as the overall banking sector has grown because you've had that consolidation, the acquisition, and I think that to some extent that's going to accelerate this. Some of these some of these banks that run into problems get get brought into the larger ones. And I, I, I would I'd be very cautious on keeping anything above the FDIC limit in, in any bank, especially banks outside of the top four, because you never know, you, you know, you never know where these things can strike, especially because if a bank's even if it's relatively, um, you know, solvent on the surface, you don't know necessarily the quality of its loan book unless you've done rigorous analysis on that particular bank. Um, and so any one of these is, is kind of subject to risks and. Um, I, I think it's going to be just an ongoing challenge because now, now that that product's out, for example, that's another liquidity suck. So money markets are already kind of, you know, uh, pulling capital towards them. The large banks are already pulling, uh, you know, uh, deposits towards them. Uh, teaser rates like this can pull deposits towards them, and that puts a lot of pressure on the existing yep. banks that are that are, you know, have very low yields on their asset book and are slowly try- having to raise rates to keep up with this. It's just going to be just a mess. I mean, it's just a mess. All right, last question, and it's from uh, one of your fans. I, I told you you're going to have a whole bunch of them uh, on the queue. And it is cool to have you on, on Hedge ITV. If I haven't said that multiple times, I'll say it again. Um, but from Paul Clayton, hi, Lynn. Great to see you on Hedge I, I see you a lot on the Bitcoin crypto YouTube channels being interviewed. Uh, how much of a crypto bubble mania head trip do you think we still have left? So I, I, I separate kind of Bitcoin from the rest of the crypto space. Um, yep. I, I think I think the the, the broad crypto space. Uh, I think the the noise to signal ratio is unfortunately very high. Uh, I still think there's a lot of froth that has to bleed out. I think we're 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 obviously seeing more and more regulatory hits against that space. Basically, is you know they define what is a security, mm-hmm. which 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 assets are have violated security laws, which companies have violated security laws by selling those assets to the public. Um, and so I think that that whole space is kind of fraught with landmines going forward. I'd be very cautious uh, around putting serious capital in that space. Um, Bitcoin, I put in a different category because it's it's not a security. It's it's a you know it's, it's recognized as a digital commodity because it doesn't pass the Howey test. I also think the fundamentals that the actual decentralization is more robust. And so you know I do think that. A lot of the froth has already been worked out of the Bitcoin space. Um, a lot of the, the tourists have, have gone during this whole kind of you know catastrophic bear market. Um, there's a lot of interesting development that's happening, both in terms of you know getting you can get exposure with the underlying asset, but then also for accredited investors, there's actually interesting say VC opportunities out there that I think uh, you know quite good. But once you go to that the broader space, uh, I, I still think there's a lot that's probably going to bleed out over time in, in terms of existing froth across the market. Hmm. That's a very good answer, a concise one at that. Uh, and uh, very good conversation. I mean, my favorite people in uh, this profession are people, you know, again, it's not the old wall people uh, because they haven't evolved. I mean, you know, to be an engineer and essentially I just, and hopefully you don't take offense to this, I call you like a polymath uh, who can really think about the entirety of the system within your own framework. I mean, that 
one, that's hard to do um, because you have to have your own framework. And two, it takes a shitload of work and constantly refreshing. And, and you weren't afraid to say, hey, look, I didn't look at that bank yet. That's new news. I'll look at it. I think that's a pretty critical thing as well. But um, you know, for us, uh, because at least it was for me, and by the way, if anyone has any uh, wants to dig in deeper on why Lynn and Rob Simone think that way about Bitcoin differently than the rest of crypto, uh, I believe we have that up on YouTube so you can go watch that, that conversation. But Man, great, like a really good job. And uh, in terms of you know, going from A to B from 2016 to where you're at now. And now I know why you have a lot of people following you. So, so, th so thanks for joining us today. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. And I, I do think that, uh, you know, one thing I appreciate about a hedge eye is that kind of defining your different uh, time frames for examining things. I often find that a lot of analysis out there, one of the mistakes they make is they only focus on one time frame. Mm. And, you know, obviously we, we, we can't all cover every time frame. But by having a set of different timeframes that you cover and know, knowing how to differentiate them, I think is that that, that kind of settles a lot of the, the confusion out there when you see people talking past each other or people with different views. It's, it's making sure you have a clearly defined time frame for the specific action that you're referring to. Yeah, the time in the cycle that you come into something, the time that you take a position, the time by which you look at things, it's critical. It's, it's, it's actually, I'd say if you don't have that, then... No one should listen to you at all. So uh, now a, a lot more people are going to listen to you. And, and again, thanks, thanks for making the time. Thank you. Lynn Alden, nice find by Dan Holland for the uh, Hedge Eye Investing Summit. Up next, I'm going to be psychoanalyzed by Dr. Gio. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.